This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3249 for Thursday the 14th of January 2021. Today's show is entitled, Linux In-Laws S01E21. The big Linux In-Laws peep show and is part of the series, Linux In-Laws. It is hosted by Monochrome, and is about 53 minutes long, and carries an explicit flag. The summary is, the two chaps go the full Monty and reveal it all. This episode of HPR is brought to you by Archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Linux In-Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Due to shortcomings with Martin's audio configuration, some parts of the podcast may be of suboptimal sound quality. Full marks have to go to the in-laws post-production crew to salvage what could be salvaged, but unfortunately the sound quality you've come to expect from Linux in-laws is not up to scratch with this episode for which the in-laws would like to apologize. This is Linux in-laws season one, episode 21, the big Linux in-laws beep show. Martin, how are things? Hey, good morning, Chris. Things are fine and dandy and cold and snowy and even in this the whole of last year. <laughs> even in these corona-ridden times. Yeah, yeah, nothing has changed um, from that perspective. Just I've been okay. from last year. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you have some vacation coming up, no? Possibly, possibly. It depends. Well, I keep my fingers today, crossed. Today is yet another announcement day, so let's see. Is it? Mm. What's going to be announced? Lizzie stepping down finally? <laughs> Boris doing the same? No, that no, sort no. of thing? The, the usual um, corona uh, briefing by the PM. Ah. Every time they make some changes. I see. 
But this is not the subject of today's episode because today's episode, no, it's not Martin. <laughs> In contrast to popular belief. No, it's not Martin. This is not a Corona show. As a matter of fact, it's called the Linux indoors peep show for a reason because today's uh, subject, yes, is actually how to take a look at your system in terms of the fun stuff you always wanted to know about debugging, tracing, monitoring Linux. Well, not monitoring, but rather focuses actually on tracing and debugging. But we're always afraid to ask. So, Martin, why don't we get started with... Yeah, I have, I have a question for you. Oh, by all means, yes, why don't we get started? <laughs> Getting started is a good idea. Excellent. <laughs> it's a bit tricky. Welcome to Linux in Last <laughs> Season 1, Episode 2021. Yes, Martin, you had a question, sorry. Yeah, so when would one want to do tracing? Well, one, if when one when one wants to find something out about the system, okay, the big picture tracing is essentially the idea of to take a look at. No, that's not proper English. Tracing is essentially following uh, the execution of a program, right, uh, from various aspects. Whereas debugging basically takes that concept one step further in terms of you can set breakpoints. You can inspect variables, you can set watch points, all the rest of it. And, of course, uh, Linux especially has quite a significant tool, tool, tool set, tool chain, tool chain, tool chain around this. Um, full caveat, people, we won't go through the low-level technical details because that's exactly what web pages and man pages are for. This, the purpose of this episode is rather to give you a kind of a short overview of what you have at your disposal focusing on Linux. Some of the stuff is also available on other systems like OS X and so forth. Um, so we should be able to keep this episode to the absolute minimum, the usual two and a half hours, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it may, <clears throat> may be a bit of a bumper on this one. <laughs> <laughs> so, Martin, why don't you get us started, basically, with, with debuggers? Debuggers. Well, so, I mean, it depends what kind of programming you do, right? Uh, okay. Old school. Back to, back, back to the beginning. <laughs> exactly. Old school C type <laughs> stuff. We're working on some premises here that, that people are actually <laughs> writing low-level. Not low-level. Yes. But um, not, not programming in Python or Java or... Co- correct, correct, correct. Um, why don't we basically take a step hmm. back and take a yes. look at where it all started with an operating system called Unix, which of course hmm. was at the time, um, at the time being, uh, back in the 70s, closed source. And I think, uh, originally authored by a company or uh, by, by a bunch of people working at a company called AT&T. And they had this great idea of, of doing this actually in a low-level programming language called C. Which, funny enough, after 50 years in the making is still around because if you take a look at GitHub, mm. uh, you, you, you will find out that quite a few projects, I don't know the exact percentage, but my guess would be that at least a third, if not half, maybe somewhere in between of the code out on GitHub and similar platforms is still in C or some derivative like C++ uh, and stuff. What about the Linux kernel itself? How much of that is C? I suppose um, 
even with the advent of Rust crates and so forth for driver development. Uh, details in the show notes. Um, I would reckon that my guess would be around what, 96, 97%. Um, the, the, the Linux kernel is structured, of course, um, into a machine dependent part where mm-hmm. the low level stuff is really living. Uh, like you buy, like, like, uh, the, cur- the, like the hardware exception layer. Um, and then the rest is, is basically written in C. Um, there is, in contrast to popular belief, there is no single piece of C++ code in the Linux kernel. Um, uh, Linux was straightforward and quite clear about this in the, I think, late 90s that no portion of the kernel would ever be written in C++. For a number of reasons, you'll find the details in the show notes. Essentially, he doesn't see the advantages, or he didn't see the advantages, and I think that's still valid today. Um uh for 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 writing portions of the kernel in C++. So the kernel itself is written in C and machine-dependent assembler mm-hmm. as such. And, of course, the first abstraction on top, running on top of the kernel is something called glibc, mm-hmm. also known as libc in other operating systems. And that of it, and essentially it's the layer that talks to, exactly, mm-hmm. that talks to the kernel. Like opening files, allocating memory, and all the rest of it. Um, or rather kind of accessing files, not just opening it. So let's go back to how would you program a C I still want to know why. software. Funny enough, because... If you're developing C, a C, because, C well, well, soft software is written by humans, right? Some of it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and funny enough, these people make mistakes when they write software. Yeah, we should do away with them. <laughs> if you want to sponsor a Cyberdyne, feel free. <laughs> yes, Skynet, why don't you get in touch? <laughs> the, the address is, yes, <laughs> the address is sponsors at linuxinlaws.eu. Okay. No, uh, jokes jokes aside, um, so of course, and that probably includes you as well, Martin, if you write a program, it's n- it's never bug-free from day one. Mm-hmm. So this is the reason why you use GDB, LLDB, and friends to ensure that you actually debug, and this is actually a clue, is in the name, that you actually get rid of the bugs in the program. And this is exactly why, why, why you use debuggers for. Sure, right. Yes, Martin, there you go. <laughs> so, so getting up early has, has already paid off for Martin. <laughs> Never mind liquid alcoholic refreshments are not at 10 a.m. in the morning. Anyway. It's only nine here. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so, um, and of course, two famous debuggers come to mind. Something called GDB, which is the GNU debugger. And the latest addition, I think, to that game is actually something called LLDB from the LLVM project. Right. Okay. LLVM, of course, standing for low-level virtual machine. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's a... What's the word I'm looking for? It's not a counter project, but rather, but rather, it's a counter. Hmm, something or other to the GNU compiler collection. Ah, okay. As in, yes, as in a compiler collection with various front ends and C lang would be one of them for C and C++. That basically allows the transformation of C code into machine uh, instructions. And of course, they have, they also have their own debugger, debugger called LLDB, also, by the way, used 
in something called the Rust toolchain, because essentially, if you take a look at the at, at the standard Rust compiler implementation, this is actually based on LLVM. So the debug of choice for serious Rust programming would, of course, be LLDB in this case. Okay. And the usual functionality, of course, is present in both debugger types or de de debugger implementations, let's put it this way. Like certain certain function, uh, certain uh, certain breakpoints, basically, you where you tell the program where to stop. So once you set a breakpoint, the program execution stops, and then you can spit variables, registers, and so forth. Yep. Okay. Good stuff. Uh, so that's really. Talking about the debugging side of, um, but uh, okay, you can carry on a bit about that in a minute. But um, there are also other purposes why one might want to do um, inspections of running code. I assume with your security background. Well, to ensure that there's a minimal attack surface, as in, if you fuss a program, basically, um, let. You want to know why it's breaking, how it's breaking. Sorry, fuzzing a program, of course, means pumping input values into a piece of software that would have the potential to make it break. Because, for example, there's um, input validation missing, i.e. you don't take a look at the data that is fed into a program, uh, but rather you just try to process it based on your algorithms. Because what you normally would do is basically in order to ensure sanity of a piece of software, uh, or data rather, enter, entering that, that piece, that code base is actually what you, what you would do, what you would do, you would actually take a look at the, at the, at the input data in terms, in terms of validating it, making sure that it adheres to the, to the formal criteria that you hopefully specified, and also making sure that the data entered makes sense. In terms of it's it's valid, that sort of yeah, thing, so and of course you can your, do, and you can also do that with a debugger. Someone else's um, programming uh, skills, abilities, whatever, pass <laughs> um, their input variables, I guess. Yes, <clears throat> and one important thing that both debuggers actually uh, support is actually you can attach to an already running program. That comes in handy, for example, if you are debugging demons and server pieces of software. Okay. Uh, assuming that, of course, you have the necessary privileges, needless to say, being an ordinary user, attaching to a server that is running as root and then trying to inspect the, it, it, its variables and stuff might be very tricky for a reason, of course. Well, I think tricky is probably an understatement here. No? <laughs> Well, there's a reason why Linux explicitly yeah. forbids this. Mm. So if you want to debug an already running server with a particular uh, running as root, needless to say, you have to be root yourself. Mm -hmm. Of without saying. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted your debugging. No, that was, that was pretty much it. I mean, the usual, and you'll see this actually with any debugger, not just related to, to GDB or, or LDB. You have the usual functionality at your disposal, like inspecting variables, modifying variables, setting breakpoints, setting watchpoints where you, um, the difference, of course, between a breakpoint and a watchpoint 
And the difference between a breakpoint and a watchpoint is that a breakpoint always interrupts the flow of the execution in a program, whereas the watchpoint simply prints out the contents, for example, of a variable, but continues the program execution. It's handy basically when you watch, when you just want to take a look at how a variable is behaving when you execute a program. Mm-hmm. That's the main difference. Yeah. Um, for the, uh, the, the hipster Java programmers amongst us who want to uh, venture into this, um, Area, uh, are there any plugins for, say, I don't know, their their, their favorite UIs to run a, a GDB? Because last time I used it was like twenty years ago. <laughs> it's all command line. Um, have thought you were the Java fanboy among uh, among us? No, no, Martin. What no, has changed? Fan is is a uh, yeah. Quite a contradiction in terms, but that's not that. Of course, you do have, uh, well, the, the usual, um, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, Integrated development environments like Eclipse and so forth would have their own debuggers built into uh, the tool chain. Even, oh, I think OpenJDK supports something called JDB, where you can, similar to GDB or, LV, or, or LLDB, where you can basically inspect the uh, compiled program running on a, on, a, on a JVM at runtime. So the comp- so the function the, the functionality is comparable to other debuggers. Yes, but if you wanted to say is a, do the same for GDB and use your favorite GUI for this, what would you use? Or is this of co- available? No, of, of of course the normal IDEs like CDT, for example, for Eclipse, which is essentially a development environment for C and C++ programmers running right, on yeah. top of Eclipse mm-hmm. would access the existing debuggers like GDB and LLDB yeah. from, a, from, a, from a GUI perspective as a graphical yeah. user interface. So you would have a full integration of set debuggers in your IDE. Okay. Um, sim- similar to, similar to PyCharm. Yes, mm-hmm. similar to PyCharm, of course, you can invoke the standard Python debugger, which is called PDB, uh, from your ordinary GUI. That means uh, you have all the semantic, uh, all, all the niceties, let's put it this way, all the goodies in your GUI, in your IDE. You don't have to resort to the command line, but seriously, people, who wants to use IDEs for debugging programs, right? I mean, we leave, we, 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 exactly, we leave that, we leave that to the hipster generation. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, we are quite old. So yes, we have grown up with the command line. And, uh, funny enough, if I'm, if I'm doing work on embedded systems, which I do quite a lot, as a matter of fact, the only tools at my disposal is actually a, a C compiler in the shape of GCC or something else. And then maybe Emacs. And of course, GDB or some other command line oriented debugger. The beauty is, even if you SSH into that, in, 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 uh, into an embed system where you don't have an IDE at your disposal, you simply can do this on the command line. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this command line is obviously always available. It's rather handy. And that hasn't really changed for the last 50 plus years. No, all this, this fancy GUI stuff that was this, yeah, I remember when it came out. What was that? Oh. Uh, 90s? Turbo Pascal came out in the 80s, actually. And that, I think, was the yeah. first ASCII or terminal based IDE 
for something called Turbo Pascal. Pascal, yeah, okay. Because this is what I used when I was at uni, and that goes back to the mid-80s. You used to Pascal at uni, wow, okay. You didn't? No, just normal Pascal. <laughs> actually, we started, no, we did, we did Algol, actually. <laughs> anyway, this is the subject of a different episode. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I didn't know that you go that that, that your universities uh, that your university days go date back to the sixties. I thought we were kind of of similar age. <laughs> I, um, my university was one that liked to go on principles, not on fancy. <sighs> so people, uh, I I'm, I'm sure that twenty is uh, that you, the university of twenty is different these days. But in the old days, apparently. <laughs> It was quite laid back when it came to fancy newfangled stuff. Yeah, I think they had a fire a couple of years back, so the PDP 11 is probably burned down. <laughs> probably upgraded. Excellent. So, what what are they running these days? Microvaxes? <laughs> probably. <laughs> or, even, or, or even some network PCs, which were all the rage in the 80s. What was it called? That, that thing, NetDOS or something, right? Done by Novel. Oh my God! Yes, there was a network operating system, but I can't. Yeah. Re- but I can't remember the name. If if I feel like it, you you have the links in the show notes. <laughs> I don't think there'll be many takers for that one, so don't worry too much. Um, right, where were we anyway? If we talk about debugging, debuggers, yes. Hmm. Um, so the idea is essentially uh, you take a com- somewhat compiled code base and then you take a look at what's happening in that code base. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the details are a little bit programming language specific, but there's the beauty about about GDB and LDB because you essentially tell the compiler to generate debugging information. These debuggers typically know how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so say, for example, I want to do some debugging on ELSA. I can just hook that up and that's a breakpoint. See what's going on. Also, you mean the sound system? Hmm. Well, some of the stuff basically is, is running on uh, in the kernel, like like the sound drivers themselves. But mm-hmm. needless to say, of course, you can debug any libraries as part of your user land. Goes without saying. So, if you program interface directly with Elsa, if it's kind of still kind of the the legacy stuff, not talking to Pulse, because you would normally do, you would normally use these days um, an audio system like Pulse or Jack if you want to do audio processing, because Elsa basically is the hardware itself or represents the hardware itself. Basically, yes, of course, you can talk directly to the um, Elsa API, and uh, given the fact that this is implemented as library, you can of course use uh, GDB or LDB for this. Goes without saying. Oh, there you go. So some, some, some word of advice, although people, especially if you're talking C or any draft language, just make sure that you use the corresponding optimization settings. Because if you use the wrong optimization settings, you, if, especially if you tell the compiler to optimize the hell out of the generated machine code, you'll have funky stuff in your debugger going on, like variables not existing anymore, expressions basically uh, going away, that sort of thing. So what I normally do is basically I either omit optimization completely or I tell the compiler to use a very uh, basic optimization, like in GCC, like that would be minus capital O zero. 
which essentially tells the, the compiler not to bother apart from the very basic optimizations. Okay. Because you, the more you optimize, the stranger the generated uh, machine code will look to a, a an ordinary debugger. Handy tips, right? Uh, so, brings does that bring us onto tracing yet? Well, we can. No, there's no, there's nothing stopping us, right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> so the next break point, the next break point, yes, would be indeed tracing. <laughs> okay, uh, two two uh, general um, approaches come to mind. Something called S trace and L trace. The difference, of course, being that S trace allows you to trace system calls, mm-hmm. as in anything that crosses the boundary from the user land to the kernel and back. This is basically where tracing, where S trace comes into play. So everything that calls the glibc function, I guess. Anything that the glibc, as a matter of fact, passes on to the kernel, yes. And L trace, of course, as the and and, and the hint is actually the 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 the, the, uh, the letter L here allows you to trace library calls. So anything that passes between your program and any assorted libraries that you link to can be checked out with L-Trace. And the idea is that L-Trace is, compared to S-Trace, quite rather a high-level tracing tool that allows you to take a look at the flow of control between different components, different libraries that you use, whereas S-Trace actually uh, allows you to take a look at what's passed to the kernel and comes back. This is the main difference. Both approaches rely on something called ptrace which is essentially a kernel capability allowing uh, exactly like process that allows a process to attach to another process something that also gdb uses when you want to inspect an already running piece of software it's special capability Segue into capabilities. Capabilities essentially are, in Linux at least, special rights that a threat has, like tracing. If a threat is lacking this this capability, it cannot attach to a different process um, for the purpose of tracing this um, thing. Uh, other capabilities, for example, include the possibility to open a port uh, with a with a numeric value under 1024, even if you're not running as root. So meaning if a particular executable has that capability set, you can mm, open yeah. port 700 not being a super user. These are just two examples of capabilities found in Linux and other systems. Details are, of course, in the show notes. And just basically conclude the segue now, these capabilities on a file level are normally included in the extended attributes of a file. Again, the details you'll find mm-hmm. in the show notes. Okay. They are actually quite useful. Yeah, it's, it's, um, they are quite useful for the one stuff on the thousand and one as a good example. Of course, it does depend on the file system supporting these, these, these extended attributes. And every file system supports these. But in the Linux world, at least the Ext family of operating of, of file systems come to mind, like X2, X3, X4, that support these out of the box. And you'll see any newer file systems like RiseNFS, ButterFS, and all the rest of them have 
more often than not unlimited support in terms of the number of bytes that can comprise an, an extended attribute can actually quite can is not limited. That's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. So um, x x x one x two three and four limit the extended file attributes, whereas the newer file systems don't. But I've yet to see a limit a software system basically that runs into capacity issues when attaching extended file attributes to a file. Yeah. So, so these limitations are rather in, uh, theoretical in nature. Okay. Anyway, coming back to coming back to especially S-Trace. S-Trace is pretty handy if you want to know what's happening on a system level, mm-hmm. i.e., for example, what files your program opens when it's executed. Yeah. And uh, S-Trace? Yeah, this, yeah. Okay, if I'll open, there are other tools for that as well. But um, what about the performance aspect of your code and, uh, you know, debugging, or not debugging, but um, measuring various latency, uh, frequency of calls and things like that. Um, you can, well, you can do that too, because Astra simply gives you a listing of the, of the system calls that you, or that a piece of software generates. Needless to say, yeah, there's a performance penalty that is being paid. Uh, but if you redirect the S trace output to particular files, like there's a command line switch for that called minus O, uh, it goes directly into file and and is not being displayed on the console. Meaning, yes, you have a performance impact, but this is not that big. S trace comes in handy, especially if you want to take a look at what's happening inside a code base, inside a software, where you don't necessarily have access to the source code for. Mm. Because normally, of um, course, you could yeah, expect and, the source code, yeah. but if that source code, for whatever reason, is not available, but you still want to see what's going on, mm-hmm. S-Trace is your friend. Yeah, and, and it also, well, I mean, the difference between looking at source code and the running program is obviously that you can get your, the number of calls to various functions and where mm-hmm. the time is spent, right? Also, nice, a nice feature of S-Trace is actually you can, Generate the system calls or the, or the list of system calls on a per thread basis. Command line switch for that is actually minus FF. That means follow each and every thread while, while it's executing and dump the system calls to separate files. Details are on the man page. Um, that means, especially if you have a heavily multi-threaded program, you can exactly trace What's going on when and where with regards to system calls? Now the, the output is quite comprehensive, needless to say, depending on the amount of system calls that a particular thread makes, but it's quite handy because as I said, if, especially if you pump the output of S-Trace into a file, you can then use your ordinary, say, tools like AWK, FGrep, or the general um, grab family in order to sift through that output and to make sure that you get the information that you want. For example, if you're just interested in the files that a particular program is opened uh, is opening, you just grab for the open statements mm-hmm. in the in the S-trace output. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Uh, yeah. So um, if you have a particularly if you have a close. Software, then a 
comes in rather handy to see what it's actually doing. Indeed. Exactly. So S-Trace, you can, I mean, going to the extreme, you can regard S-Trace as, as, a, as a poor man's uh, first step to reverse engineering a piece of software if you want to take a close look at what's happening inside. Oh, if you're so inclined. Needless to say, kids. Issues. Um, exactly. Yeah. Needless to say, kids, don't try this at home unless you're a trained professional. Mm, like a kernel. As, <laughs> as Martin has found out quite a few times in the past, yes. No, no, S-Trace is really easy to use, right? It's just, um, yeah. Uh, you would only use it, well, I, I've only used it when dealing with exactly. proprietary software to find out. So, so Martin, when, when, did you, when, when did you last, when did you last use S-Trace? Oh, that's uh, probably about 10 years ago, yeah. Okay. <laughs> not not my daily activity, indeed. Yeah. Full disclosure, Martin is now working for a company that deals with what, black magic, right? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> And it's not in the business of ripping off uh, ripping off Postgres code. No, certainly not. Well, the other thing <laughs> for disclosure, an open source project like this is that you don't need it either, really, do you? Well, it depends on what you uh, uh, It depends on what you want to do, right? Well, the source code's available, so why uh, would you? Need yes. To trace it. Indeed. Okay. <laughs> so, so not that useful for open source software. <laughs> Another joke had backfired, but that's okay, no worries. No worries. Uh, for, for, for disclosure, people, uh, for those few listeners who haven't listened, who haven't listened to the back catalog, Martin and myself used to work for Redis Labs. And of course, Redis Labs, uh, being the home of Redis, this kind of in-memory NoSQL database thing. Okay. Thing, thing is a good word, yes. Thing, yes, indeed. <laughs> that nicely, this thing brings us nicely, I think, to the next component, mm-hmm. which is, of course, something called the Berkeley Packet Filter. What, what do you know about the BPF? Yeah, it's got two parts, right? The extended bit and the non-extended bit. can't remember what the non-extended bit is useful. But, um, there's not people raving about um, BPF. Any, any idea why? I guess they like it. Yes. <laughs> well, you can Martin, Martin, <laughs> anyway. you being yeah, Martin, you being the very old guy here. Does D trace ring a bell? Going back to the olden Sundays, yes. Yeah, that is no, that is too long ago. <laughs> I think it was first it's implemented of, in Solaris, of, right? Yeah, or even SunOS. Hmm. Mm. Um. Yeah. So BPF. Hmm. Do, 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 have you ever used D-Trace, Martin? Well, yes, but that would have been another 30 years. About, what, 30 years ago, <laughs> yes. If memory, if, if if a vague recollection of things is still present, what can you remember about D-Trace in contrast to S-Trace and L-Trace and all the rest of, the, uh, of these things? Well, it's more like, it was more of a, um, uh, that would have been used in an academic setting, whereas S-Trace and stuff had some practical use. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, D-Trace really allowed to instrument the kernel interface to the extent that you actually use, that you could use expressions, for example, in contrast to S-Trace that doesn't allow this. I uh, could could use expressions to filter, for example, the monitoring functionality 
of data being passed to the kernel and coming back. So in contrast to S-trace, where you simply can capture all the files that are opened and um, the file names and all the rest of them, D-trace would allow you to say, now look, I'm, all, uh, I'm just interested in files under this particular directory. Um, or I just want to know the files who are opened by a, a child process of the main program and all the rest of them. So the idea behind D-Trace was to give you a programmable, a programmable level that S-Trace simply doesn't support. Yeah. And and there have been quite a few attempts being made to port D-Trace to Linux. I think, if I'm not completely mistaken, most of them failed. But then the Berkeley packet filter came to the rescue. Mm. The Berkeley packet filter, of course, being the Next or new generation, sorry, being the new or next generation implementation of something called IP tables, as in the the low-level firewall built into the kernel. And originally, the hint is actually in the name Berkeley Packet Filter. The original implementation was geared at filtering packets in the kernel as part of the network stack. But, and this is where the extended bit comes in, essentially BPF or eBPF these days is a low-level virtual machine running inside the kernel, which has its own instruction set. LLVM and GCC support these or supports this instruction set. So you can simply write a C-like program that simply talks to that virtual machine or rather is executed inside the kernel on this virtual machine. And that exactly allows you to do similar things that only before that D-Trace was able to do, like to instrument the stuff that is, or, or the monitoring functionality on top of the current, on top of the kernel, if that makes sense. Yeah, before, right, you'd have to use various um, kernel probes and stuff to get that information before, right? and, and um, I think BF makes that a lot easier. Yes, there are, of course, with the corresponding tool chain and details, of course, as usual in the show notes, uh, you have various predefined kernel probes at your disposal, but of course, you can modify them, you can write your own stuff. So, for example, there was at some stage on one of my servers a somewhat misconfigured, uh, I can't even remember what it was, I think Mailman instance that generated some spurious log directory in VAR. And for the hell of it, I couldn't figure out which component of the Mailman 3 installation that was. So I basically did a kernel probe that would capture a specific path of this log file, as in VAR logs, and would then capture the PID so I would exactly know, and during the course of a couple of weeks, I would exactly know which process created this file and what the executable attached to this PID was. And that, of course, would give me a hint of what component of of the Mailman 3 installation was actually in charge of creating this particular subdirectory, which comes in handy. Yeah, that sounds pretty handy. Um, yeah, so, blah, 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 blah. um, when have you last used, well, hmm, interesting, it's, um, if you look at the, 
Okay, if you have a piece of software you want to trace it, use S trace inference. Um, if you are, yeah, but you're saying you can use EPBF as well. But normally you, you see, your own piece yeah. Of with, with well, S trace and L trace is is bound to the execution of a particular executable, and it's it's mm. it's possibly generally short process, but. The BP or the, the, the extended Burkle packet, Burkle packet filter and the two chips surrounding it basically allows you to monitor a system completely in terms of it's not bound to an executable. The kernel probes allow you basically to specify your conditions and the rest is up to you. So it gives you that level of flexibility that S and L trace simply don't. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't used EPPF, but, um, uh, from what I understood is it's more you write your own piece of code that you then get your stats on. Exactly. So the idea is basically to use C-like language, which is, as a matter of fact, pretty close to C, to write your kernel probes and all the rest of it. There are a huge number of examples coming with tools like BCC, Mm. As in the Berkeley, Berkeley um, compiler collection, I think it's called. Uh, details are again in the show notes. Uh, so you basically simply, simply take a look at what's out there and simply modify that to your heart's content. Um, and of course, you just not are you you you're simply not bound to 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 see as the as the as the native language. There's also a Python binding available. Uh, that is supported by Python 2 and Python 3 right out of the box. Okay, so say you are a, um, you want to start uh, adding to the Linux kernel. What tools will you use? First, let, let's start with your brain, I reckon. <laughs> nah. <laughs> <laughs> So Martin, Martin will never be a proper kernel programmer, I suppose. Uh, no, no, no. Well, I mean, yes, um, I you take, uh, up, yeah. <laughs> you simply go to kernel.org and pull down the, the existing source. And then you take a look at the particular subsystem where you want to, that you want to extend or add a subsystem or, um, and whatever. And you do it, of course, in C. Yeah. Now, the my, thing, my point is really that if, you know, it, okay, fine, that's your first, yes, you need to start writing some programs and things, but you know, we understand the pieces of the kernel and uh, when they are running, then this is where today's subject comes in, right, with uh, the various abilities to trace. Now, kernel tracing is a, is, is, yeah, is, is a completely, well, I wouldn't say completely different matter, but there's also, there's a, com, there's a separate tool set available to, for, for, in, mm. for, um, for in kernel tracing. The yeah. idea is, uh, of eBPF and friends is rather to give you a perspective of, of what's happening between the user land and the kernel. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's get more towards the application programmer, if you will. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So, but if you want to take that a step further, and say, oh, my program is, um, I don't know, doing these uh, system calls. Um, how does that execute in the kernel, right? So you may want mm. to go one step further. Well, of course, you start with S-Trace, and then, of course, mm. for the more complex stuff, there's always the eBBF at your disposal in Linux, or tools like D-Trace on other operating systems. Yeah. Okay. 
And this is what? Almost an hour done of the remaining two, <laughs> of the <laughs> remaining four. <laughs> four. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, maybe we, maybe I got that wrong. I don't know. Um, anything else? Basically, we should cover on this mod before we close off the show. Yeah, I think. I mean, as as um, a not so um, low level kernel user or, or Linux user, I mean, S Trace is is the tool to use if you want to find out what your any piece of software is doing. Right? Um, in summary, if you want to go develop in C or languages like that, then use your uh, eBPFs and tools like that. Any other summaries that you would like to add? To this? Well, GDP and LLDB would be kind of, uh, I reckon, your first go-to's, uh, go-to tools if you're talking about if software that you are... Yeah, yeah, yes. If, if you if if you or somebody else has written this, but mm. especially the eBPF and friends come in handy if you want to take a look at and modern operating systems like Linux can be pretty comp- uh, complex with regards to mail demons, printers, uh, the subsystems, all the rest of it. This is basically where eBPF and friends really shine in terms of if you want to know uh, what's happening when and where outside the ecosystem of your own or somebody else developed software in terms of a complete system. This is basically where these tools really shine. Okay, yeah, that's, no, that's a handy overview. Um, and yeah, as you said, if you are uh, like yourself <laughs> writing software for um, embedded systems, then you're going to end up having to use these things. So. Absolutely. Hmm. And of course, well, eBPF is available, I think, since kernel 3 dot something, 4 dot something. So it's been around for a while. Okay. Excellent. Well, that was a very nice insight of how to find out what runs and how. Yes. And before I forget, Martin, now's probably the time to again pick up the poxes and the anti-poxes. Okay, cool. So, Martin, what's your pox of the week? Yes. Um, Okay, so my pox of the week is a book. A book? Okay. And it's it's called uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. (laughs) Uh, Weapons of Weapons of Math Destruction? Indeed, indeed. Like equations and stuff. And functions and algebras and whatever. Maths is short for mathematics. Yeah. <laughs> I get this. Yes. <laughs> okay. Good. Glad to. Hear. So uh, I, I'm just wondering, why do you want to destruct math? No, 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 no. So, so this is a book that is really um, talking about um, how math is being misused in algorithms in you know by the likes of Google's, Amazon's, any. And other companies out there, and it's just good read. Um, okay, because obviously details on the show with, notes. With, with statistics, you can prove anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> can you? I wouldn't know about that. <laughs> that user land stuff, no. <laughs> so yeah, that's my box. What is your box of the week? Box of the week, um, probably. Uh, I think we never mentioned this, but Audacity comes pretty close. 
because this is software that we use to produce the show. Okay. And you can say whatever you want about, about Audacity, <laughs> but it has been and will be probably for the um, for 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 the time where that yeah, we make that's... this podcast a very that's handy tool. Um, also, and just po the post production department just loves it. Uh, never mind how many how many teams Martin actually fires and are recruit, but that's probably beside the point. I know. Uh, <laughs> They all use Audacity, yes. <laughs> so that would be my pox of the week. Yeah. And your anti-pox, Martin. I think I know what your anti-pox is. Does <laughs> <laughs> it start with a J, perhaps? It does, it does, yes. Funny, <laughs> funny that you mentioned that. Yeah, my, anti, my anti-pox of the week would be Jitsi. Uh, and particularly Jitsi Meet maintainers, if you're listening, please, 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 please make sure that your documentation is up to scratch, especially when it comes down to the more, uh, to the more advanced configurations options of the video bridge and the meeting and the meetings of and all the rest of it. It's not great. Uh, full disclosure people, I'm just in the process, or we are just in the process of migrating a big blue button instance to uh, something called Jitsi Meet. Um, I thought it was straightforward, especially with the new version 2 that apparently saw the light of the day earlier this year. We're recording this at the end of 2020. But I, when we basically, when we started this podcast about almost a year ago, we or I took a look at what's out there, open meetings, Jitsi, Big Blue and all the rest of them. And let's suffice it to say, Eventually, we uh, landed at Big Blue Button, but this is now showing the signs of the time. Times? Time? Doesn't matter. So we wanted to take a second look at what's out there, and I thought GT had improved with the, with the latest version, but uh, suffice it to say, there's still a lot of room for improvement. Let's put it this way. Yeah, Martin, what's your anti-pox? Where does that lead us? Okay, this is a subject for a different, different podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, uh, stay tuned yeah. for the epi for the, for, for the episode 24 where we, where we will all reveal about Jitsi Meat. <laughs> uh, that episode will only by the way, be about five hours long and will basically contain all the details of our fruitless attempts to get this up and running. No, I'm kidding. I'm sure it has its merits, but it's just hard to install. That's all. Right. How long does it take you again? <laughs> <laughs> the episode or installing it? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I imagine they're both, both of equal lengths. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So my antipox is, uh, well, I only have a G GPUs? <laughs> no, no. It, it, it is really... Um, uh, different um, formats for uh, transmitting uh, video data these days. Um, okay. On a physical level. Which is very annoying. Um, when your laptop doesn't have a display port. <laughs> when your laptop doesn't have what? A display port. Yeah. Um, a display port, okay, yes. But yeah, this, this, uh, these, these things keep moving and having different versions and you can do display port over USB-C and then there's uh, again the different depending where your system supports it and which version it's running in 1.4 and 2.0 and different specs and different and it's all very annoying anyway <laughs> but we just like things to work generally indeed we do <laughs> 
<laughs> and yes, Gypsy people, that was a hint. <laughs> Or as Snow White used to say in, recent, in, in a recent musical, get this shit done. Okay. Okay, and with that, I think we are almost done. As usual, we can be found on HPR. Again, if you're listening, all the best for 2021. Uh, we will continue to um, be hosted on this platform until further notice. Mm. We would like to thank mm. the great community out there of people who just keep improving Linux and the surrounding ecosystem for their great work. Uh, the tools we discussed in this episode are probably just the best examples for this. And we will be, of course, what's what I'm looking for? Yes, we will be looking for sponsors. So if you <laughs> if you want to send money away, <laughs> buy T-shirts or yes, and of course we are also we are always looking for feedback. Hmm. So okay. the email address, yes, is a feedback at linuxinlaws.eu, and the address to send any uh, any any cash or other. Entities our way with regards to sponsoring the show is as is, is of course sponsor at linuxinlaws.eu. And with that, see you around. This is the Linux in Laws. You come for the knowledge, but stay for the madness. Thank, Thank you for listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution share like. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. <laughs> You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.